Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 227 of the podcast. It is August 12th, 2015. Joining me for the episode today are Ruthie Davis and Steve Cook. They're talking about the book that they edited titled Do the Right Thing, Real Life Stories of Leaders Facing Tough Choices. While this episode doesn't focus on lean per se, I think you'll enjoy the discussion and I highly recommend the book which highlights the role of ethics and integrity in leadership, hence the title Doing the Right Thing and other ways uh, of being a great leader who others choose to follow. The book is inspired by the life and lessons of Don Davis, who served as the CEO of Stanley Works, now Stanley Black & Decker, for 22 years, from 1966 to 1988. That's an incredibly long run as the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And after retiring from Stanley, Don volunteered to teach a leadership seminar for the MIT Leaders for Global Operations program, which I was fortunate to take as a student there. So if my guest today, Ruthie Davis, is Don's daughter, and Steve Cook was a student of Don's at MIT. So they combined their efforts to publish what I think is a really compelling uh, compilation of stories from Don's students about real-life leadership challenges they faced throughout their careers and how Don's leadership mantras, as uh, everyone refers to them, uh, helped them in those times. So Ruthie Davis is an entrepreneur and designer. She's the founder and CEO of the high-fashion Ruthie Davis Shoes uh, company um, named after her. Uh, Her shoes are a top choice of uh, a long list of uh, celebrities, And uh, she was a recipient of Babson College's Entrepreneur Hall of Fame Award in 2015. Steve Cook is currently a co-founder and executive managing director of the private equity firm LFM Capital. Previously, he was a principal with TVV Capital. Uh, He was the chief operating officer of MFG.com and spent 11 years in operations leadership roles at Dell. Prior to joining Dell, he was a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy, where he flew combat missions in support of Desert Shield. He's a fellow graduate of uh, that program at MIT a year ahead of me. We worked together at Dell, gosh, back, I'd say now, at the turn of the century, 16 years ago, and we've kept in touch since. So before we get to Ruthie and Steve, I'm going to play about two minutes of audio of Don Davis speaking in a classroom um, before he passed away a couple of years ago, um, introducing and talking about three of his leadership mantras. So here is Don Davis. When I use the term leadership, what I mean is effective leadership of willing followers over a long period of time. That's the kind of leadership that makes a difference in leading an enterprise, a department, a company, whatever. First mantra. Leaders don't choose their followers, followers choose their leaders. Now, what are the implications of that? Clearly, the point here is that someone can be appointed the leader of this group. That doesn't make that person the leader of this group. Followers choose leaders they trust, respect, and are comfortable with. Now this this is pretty common sense. When you think about the kind of person you want as a leader, clearly you want someone you can trust. 
that you believe is telling you the truth. Clearly, you want someone that you have respect for. Third, leaders need a base of power and authority. But the more a leader uses this power, the less there is left. Now, this may sound a little strange, but I, I like to think of it as a bucket of power. And this job carries with it a bucket of power, and you have to have that bucket of power. Maybe the power in your particular job is to hire people, to, to terminate them, to give them raises, to promote them, to assign them work. These are all things that require certain granted power and authority. But if you keep asking and telling people to do things that are unpleasant or difficult or don't seem fair or whatever it is, without convincing them that this is fair and it is important and it is necessary and that they're the person should, that should do it. If you just keep using your power and authority, it's going to be, it's going to get old after a while. You have the power, you need the power, but if you just blatantly use it and say, do it because I said so, it's not going to last forever. So the words of Don Davis, um, as uh, we, we heard from him, I thought it would be helpful before getting into the interview to quickly read the rest of Don's leadership mantras. Integrity is the bedrock of effective leadership. Only you can lose your integrity. Selfship is the enemy of leadership. Leadership should be viewed as stewardship. Be yourself. The number of effective leadership styles is limitless. The best leadership is based on persuasion. Leaders set the ethical standards and tone of the organization by their behavior. One of a leader's key responsibilities is stamping out self-serving politics when it emerges. Be sure to know as much as possible about the people you are leading. One manages things, people lead people. Diversity in an organization is not only legally required and socially desirable, it is effective. Don't make tough borderline decisions until you need to. Many will solve themselves with time. Be quick to praise, but slow to admonish. Praise in public, but admonish in private. When making decisions about people, listen to your gut. Almost everyone can see through manipulation and game playing. Everyone can spot a phony. Learn to say out loud, I was wrong, and I don't know. If you know a plan or decision is wrong, don't implement it. Instead, keep talking. And finally, each of us has the potential to lead, follow, or be an individual contributor. So if you'd like to read all of those, um, you can go to the web at leanblog.org slash Don Davis. And for uh, more about this podcast, our guests, and the book, please go to leanblog.org slash 227. Ruthie and Steve, thank you so much for being guests on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I really appreciate the time. So, Ruthie, if you could start off, um, introduce the listeners to, to Don Davis, um, you know, who he was, at, you know, the father, CEO of uh, Stanley Works. Um, tell you know, his story for us. Well, that's a long story, so I'm <laughs> going to have to summarize. Um, uh, well, he was my father, and obviously I think he was an incredible person. Um, you know, he did do some amazing things in his life. 
And, you know, first and foremost, from my perspective, he was dad. And, uh, you know, he was an incredible father because he, you know, now that I'm older and run my own company and so on, I can look back and realize he kind of ran our family almost like, you know, his leadership principles, you know, he was like, he was CEO of a small company because there were six children and I was the youngest and just the way he sort of operated, um, he really, you know, all of the mantras that he talks about in the book, he really utilized those in his personal life and just the way he, he led people, he respected them, he taught them, mentored, um, you know, I just have an incredible childhood of a father who really cared, who wanted me to best to be the best I could, who, you know, came to watch me at my sporting events, who took all of us skiing every weekend and made, you know, pancakes at 6am and got us on the slopes, you know, after being a CEO all week. Um, He just had this incredible energy and zest for life and was truly a good person at the core and, and just really wanted to see uh, both people in the world to be as good as it could be. Um, and as a, you know, as far as his career, you know, he, um, he came from, in fact, my family history, my, his father was a professor of journalism at Penn state and actually wrote the first textbook on journal on advertising. Um, first American textbook. And my dad actually was majored in journalism, but he ended up, you know, after the war, uh, you know, he fought in the war and he came back and ended up getting a, a, an MBA at Harvard. Um, and from there, he his first interview was with Stanley and he ended up being at Stanley for, you know, 44 or 45 years. He basically started at entry level and he worked his way to the top job CEO. It's called the self-made man. Um, he was the youngest president Stanley ever had. I believe he was 39 when he became president. And uh, I think he was CEO for roughly 20, 21 years, which is one of the longest standing CEO tenures of a Fortune 500 company like ever. Um, And he just was an incredible leader. And he, you know, took Stanley through many, many changes and evolutions and really grew that company um, under his leadership. And after he retired, he then went on to teach leadership and ethics and values at MIT in the, you know, the LGO program, because he just felt like that message is so important um, that he wanted to keep on going with it. And I think he was there for 25 years. Steve, is that right? Like 25 years, a long time. Um, That's right. Yeah. And, you know, he just had this incredible charisma and I think all of his students could see it, that he was a real person. He, he, he had balance in his life. Family was as important as work. And, you know, he just taught those principles at MIT because a lot of the students in the LGO program, they're very smart. They're the creme de la creme. They have, you know, advanced degrees in engineering. Then they're getting MBAs on top of it. And, there's no doubt they have the brain power and the wherewithal to lead the top manufacturing companies in the world. But what my dad wanted to share with them is that je ne sais quoi, that thing you can't learn in a textbook in the sense of leadership. It's uh, it's something my dad believes you can learn um, through his principles, through, you know, trial and error, through practice. 
of how to, how to, you know, the, the thing that's that you can be the greatest, smartest person in the world, but if you don't have that personal side, that side that inspires people, that side that gets people pumped up to do their job, you know, it's not going to work. So he, he felt very compelled to, to take these incredibly brilliant people and to give them that thing that was my father's greatest gift, which, as you can see, it comes full circle from the journalism and the, from, you know, being a communicator, you know, his history. He, so it's kind of an interesting combination. He's kind of like the CEOs of yesteryear that were very charismatic people, very strong leaders. And, you know, now in the today's world, they have to be both that plus super, super smart engineering techie people. You know, you got to be both. So, um, yeah, I'm at my, I could go on for yeah. days, so you, you might need to shut me up. <laughs> no, that's okay. But let, let, me, let me turn to Steve because, you know, Steve and I, you know, a, a year apart in the LGO program, both had, uh, you know, the good fortune to uh, take the seminar uh, with, with Don Davis. And so, Steve, let me turn to you and kind of talk about your perspectives of, of Don from the seminar that he led. Um, what was that experience like? What are some of the key things that, that you learned? Yeah, so just to set the context, uh, I attended the Naval Academy and served for seven years uh, as an officer in the Navy. And so I had fairly significant leadership training before, uh, you know, be meeting Don and, and uh, being part of the seminar. And I would say what really stood out to me was the approach that Don took. Um, first of all, you know, it was a well-known kind of joke within the program that Don taught the class, uh, you know, for, for those 25 years. And the only thing he asked for in return was the ability to use MIT's squash courts and, and have a parking spot. And so you knew that this was a person that, you know, had been incredibly successful in his career and was pouring into you, you know, as a student. And, you know, that just meant a lot. And, and he was incredibly genuine and, you know, he, he leveraged his network to bring other very successful leaders and executives into the classroom. And so, you know, typically these classes would, would have 15 to 20 uh, students per semester. It was a very, very popular class, uh, particularly, uh, obviously, among the, the leaders for global operations program. And Don, you know, made it uh, just made it so clear that we all had the, uh, I guess, the destiny to be a leader. And it was up to us to choose, you know, what kind of leader that we were going to be. You know, he knew that as graduates of the program, you know, that we would be in one form or another thrust into leadership positions. And he talked about things in the class that, you know, many of us weren't even contemplating that ended up, you know, coming up much later in our career. I can remember a very specific class where he spent an entire class about how to manage a board when you are the CEO of a company. And I can tell you that, you know, as a 28-year-old, just having left the service, I was thinking to myself, you know, I am never going to need uh, to, you know, to deal with a board. And then 10 years later, I was in that situation and really looked back upon that experience with, uh, you know, with Don, and it really was helpful to me. 
You know, what I remember was just, yeah, like you said, his, his, you know, he was very genuine. He wasn't um, the type who seemed like he was ever putting on airs or trying to convince you how important he was. He was who he was. And, and obviously, you know, we, we respected him for what he had done. But I think we came to, you know, especially respect him for what he was teaching us, talking about ethics and integrity and, you know, thinking about scenarios that uh, a lot of us probably hadn't faced in the working world, you know, uh, the one thing that stands out to me is I think it was the first time I ever heard someone say kind of the, uh, you know, the ethical guideline of would you want to see what you're doing on the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal tomorrow morning? Mm-hmm. I have to jump in there. So that's really a great example of where he did it in the workplace. He gave that example to the students. And then at home, you know, he would give it. I also was taught that not at MIT at home. <laughs> Um, when I had my first corporate job at Reebok and there was some like sort of dilemma I asked my dad about and I'll never forget. He was like, well, Ruth, let's put it this way. Whatever you choose to do, if you're okay with it being, you know, in the lobby when you go into the Reebok headquarters, a huge billboard that says that, you know, Ruthie did X, then it's fine. So it's funny. I didn't realize he gave you, you know, in his class, he also had a different version, but he was teaching us that at home as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Steve, are, are there any of the mantras that, that, you know, kind of have proved useful and, and, and Ruthie, I'll, I'll want to hear, you know, kind of similar stories from yourself. Um, you know, the, the, the book do the right thing is a collection of stories from a lot of graduates of the program and, and different dilemmas they faced. Um, Steve, can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how Don's lessons or, you know, helped you frame different dilemmas that you might have faced in, in your sure, career? Sure. Well, I think one of them that really, you know, stood out to me was that leadership is stewardship and that selfship is the enemy of leadership. And, <clears throat> you know, I can say honestly at the time, you know, I mean, it seems a little bit like motherhood and apple pie, but when you get deep into your career, it's, it's, you know, it's something you always have to remind yourself that the leader is not at the top of the pyramid. You know, the pyramid actually is, is an upside down triangle and the leader, if they're really effective, sees their role as one of doing everything they can do to support that team and remove roadblocks to that team. Uh, because typically it's not the, the leader that's really making an organization money or, you know, or, or really creating value. It's the people that are, you know, in a manufacturing environment, at least actually making the product or in a sales environment, actually making the sales. And so, you know, just to put it in perspective, um, I, uh, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee about 11 years ago. I was, um, I guess 38 at the time and I was made, uh, plant manager uh, for Dell's largest plant at the time. It had about 2,400 people. And, you know, I can tell you that as a 38-year-old, you know, you feel like, wow, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've made it. That was a huge career objective for me. And, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of fight that, I guess, ego, you know, that can come with that type of opportunity. And uh, my family in, uh, ended up um, going through um, you know, a difficult situation where our house was destroyed by a tornado and, and the Dell team was incredibly supportive of me uh, during that time and helping us to kind of put everything back together. And, 
one thing I'll never forget is I had taken pretty good notes in Don's class, but I, I would say had not really looked at them since I graduated. And, and, you know, when an F4 tornado hits your house and everything's, you know, kind of scattered, you just start trying to pick up everything you can. And the next day after the tornado, I, I came across my notebook of notes from Don's class and, and just kind of froze me in my spot and, and stood and looked at them. And it was just such a wake-up call that I had really strayed from the type of leadership I had wanted to uh, exhibit. I'd had a lot of success, but I would say that I was, um, I guess the, the negative term is leaving bodies. You know, I was driving teams too hard, and I was really, um, you know, using more of my, I guess, my military style of leadership than a truly kind of collaborative um, you know, style of leadership that I had wanted to use. And that really became a turning point for me in my career. I think my leadership style changed pretty dramatically, uh, kind of pre and post uh, tornado. And and a big part of it was just that wake up call that, that Don gave me inadvertently through my notebook, you know, that had been scattered on my, on my front lawn. And uh, just, you know, I think that that's the type of thing, you know, when we started putting this book together, we decided pretty early on to, um, you know, to, to make it really about the students that Don um, taught and, and how they were able to use his uh, mantras and his lessons in their careers. And, you know, we found that many people uh, out there, there's probably about 500 students that, that Don to taught over that time period, um, you know, had stories like that. And, that. and that's really what became the book. Yeah. And, you know, I want to thank you for, you know, the, the, the longer version of, of the story you told there is in the book and it's quite compelling and, you know, uh, great to see, you know, honest reflections. Um, you know, Ruthie, let me, let me turn back to you because I'm, I'm curious, you know, similar question, you know, from what you learned from Don, the father, instead of the uh, Don, the professor, which I mean, it seems like was one of the same person, obviously. <laughs> what I mean, how as as a as an entrepreneur, as a CEO of, of a company, what you know, which of those lessons have been most helpful for you? Um, you know, that's such a hard question to ask me, because in, in all honesty, I I'm going to answer your question, but I want to preface it with. I really do use all of the mantras because they're very, you know, a lot of them are, are very timeless. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not too specific and they're kind of like integrated together. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like I use one mantra at a time. <laughs> I, you know, I'm simultaneously using a number of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'm very like integrated with the mantras and how I run my company. Mm -hmm. But um, I will say, you know, if I had to pick, a couple go-tos that I, that I often think of. I think when you're running an entrepreneurial venture, you're constantly, uh, you know, you're making decisions on a daily basis that are, can be, you know, very, you know, th there's not a lot of layers in a small startup like Ruthie Davis. So, you know, my decisions can have huge impact on the company. Um, and I, I've got to like be very smart about how I steer the company. And I think that, What's very reassuring to me is what my dad had always said in the mantras. For example, he says, don't make tough borderline decisions until you need to. Many will solve themselves with time. And one other, it's very closely related. He said, when making a decisions about people, listen to your gut. 
Um, I have never felt badly about quote unquote procrastinating. Um, it may seem even to people on my team, like I'm taking too long to decide, like, and I make it clear to them, I'm not wishy-washy. I'm not indecisive. I'm taking my time because I still have to collect data points. Mm -hmm. There's something in my gut. I'm not ready to make that decision, you know, and, you know, just as an example, um, I mean, there's so many examples, but one example is, you know, I run the Ruthie Davis, you know, luxury shoe line made out of Italy. Well, I've always known that when the time is right, I want to do the little more affordable version, you know, the diffusion line, they call it. And, you know, that's something that I could have like, there's been a demand for it. A lot of girls like my shoes and they can't afford them. So it's been something that my team, myself, you know, we're very aware of and we've looked into and, you know, I, I, I just have not felt the timing was right. It just, for whatever reason that, you know, I didn't, it, I wasn't right, ready to make that decision to, to, to pull, you know, to get things going with that. And thankfully, you know, things have recently really fallen into place where, you know, a factory actually approached me you know, in Brazil that makes a similar line to what I would like is a very high quality, lower price line made out of Brazil. And they're excellent at what they do. And they actually are trying to entice me to work with them. So that's always a good thing. I'm not going out finding a factory. And then accounts are starting to ask me, you know, when are you going to launch a lower price line? We'd be interested in being, you know, the exclusive account for that line. Um, so it's all fallen into place, and I will be announcing the launch of that line mm-hmm. in 2016. Um, and just it, it sort of like worked itself out. So I think that that's something that can be very uh, difficult for an entrepreneur because you've got these big, you know, life-changing decisions on your desk every day. Mm-hmm. And I just always feel relieved because I know my dad is sitting there saying, you know, Ruthie, it's fine. If you don't feel it in your gut, and you don't feel good about it, you can wait. So I think that's going to be – that's probably my number one go-to. Well, and I think that's a really interesting point and, you know, and, and story that you have there because it's in contrast to – I think a lot of times people you know, uh, stereotype good leadership as being decisive. And being, you know, big, being fast, and you know, and a lot of times, you know, the downside of that is that people are jumping to conclusions. And you know, I'm looking at the cover of the book here. the The title, I guess, maybe now in my mind has two meanings: do the right thing, not just the ethically correct thing, but sometimes do the right thing for the business, make the right mm-hmm. decision as opposed to making the fast decision. I agree with that. That's a great way to say it. I love. I didn't think of it like that about the title, but I love that. That's <laughs> spot on. So, you know, talking about the book, Steve, let me start with you, you know, the story of, of how this book came to be. Sure. Uh, it, it, it's actually, I think, in itself a, a pretty interesting story. Uh, so when, when Don passed away, uh, as you can imagine, it was, you know, it was a major blow to really the entire LGO community. And so a decision was made to hold a memorial service at MIT uh, really for all graduates of the program. And at this point, the program, you know, was probably about 25 years old. So, you know, it was, it was a huge audience. And there were a few of us that were asked uh, to speak at that memorial service. Uh, I was one of them. Uh, Jeff Wilkie, who is a very senior executive at Amazon, uh, was another. 
and and Ruthie uh, spoke at that service as well. And uh, Ruthie uh, spoke about the fact that her father had started a book on leadership, uh, but had never, you know, had the opportunity to to finish it before he passed away. And and after the memorial service, uh, Jeff and I, uh, you know, were just talking about uh, how much Don had meant to our careers. And, uh, you know, just kind of the idea popped up about, man, wouldn't it be such an incredible legacy? And Don would never have expected it, but for his students uh, to, uh, to, to finish that book. And I don't know, Ruthie, if you want to jump in and kind of add your, your yeah. yeah, it was really um, an incredible thing because, you know, I, we're also, we're all connected with the community in the class. We all go back and teach at least one class in the seminar. I've been teaching since my dad was there. He used to have me come and teach. First, it was as a Reebok executive, you know, then a Tommy Hilfiger executive, then CEO of my own company. Um, so we had like a, a, a nice connection, um, you know, that group. And I think it was really interesting because um, when I spoke, people came up to me afterwards at the memorial and they were really really taken back because they were, you know, my dad had always spoken about, as you guys know, balance and your family's really important. And, you know, you have to be well rested and you have to work out and to be a good leader. And when they heard me speak about, you know, my dad as a person, not at work, they were really taken back with how, how authentic he was and how it was true. And he really was all those things. And it was kind of like, we need to keep this message going. I told him about the book he had started and, you know, many people had come up to me both at that memorial and some other, you know, anytime I'd see an LGO and they'd say, one thing about your dad's class is I keep a little sticky note on my desk of, of of like some of the key mantras or, you know, when in a difficult situation, I think, what would Don do? You know, he's like my due North Mm -hmm. of like, you know, almost this, this person in your mind that helps you make these decisions. And so we all kind of were talking about that as well. And we didn't want this to die. And, you know, so, um, the group was formed and we just started having these conference calls, which were really tough to schedule in the beginning. Cause you're, you know, you got, you know, all these people with these big jobs and, but somehow we made it work. And the beautiful thing, and Steve, you know, jump in here to correct me is, I don't know. The book was first going to be written one way and then this way. And within a very short period of time, it became very clear that the best book is going to be real life stories of putting my dad's mantras into use. And rather than write a business book that's like tells you what to do, that's like preachy, this is going to be it's going to show you how those principles and and actual stories and um what we like to say is the book started to write itself. And, um, you know, that's what was re- made this really special. And it wasn't like we took off where my dad left off in the book. It's like, I almost feel like my dad didn't write the book and he kind of hit a wall with it because he's, he wasn't the type of guy that wanted to write a book on leadership. He wanted to teach it and have his students write it, you know? And so it just felt really right. All of us knew like, oh, my God, this is so cool. This is the way to go with this book. And then once we started collecting the stories, it was just like it blew us away. Right, Steve? 
Yeah, it, uh, it, that's exactly right. It, you know, we originally started meeting and thought, okay, we'll just, you know, start where Don left off. And, you know, stepping into somebody's shoes as an author is really impossible. And particularly somebody like Don that you really, you know, all of us put up on, on a very high pedestal. And so we, we, you know, we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, what, what are we really trying to accomplish and, and how did Don teach us? Why was he so effective? And the reality was he was so effective because he taught through, through stories, you know, not through here's a textbook and I'm going to take you point by point through my mantras. Each of the mantras, you know, he taught through a really engaging story and the executives that he brought in were brought in for the specific purpose of, of discussing a story and, and relating that back to, you know, his mantras. And so it just seemed to make so much sense to allow really all of his students collectively to write this book. And so, you know, none of us are authors of this book. Uh, the authors of the book are all of the Don students from the Leaders for Global Operations program. We happen to be, uh, you know, given the opportunity to edit it. And it was a lot of fun uh, pulling stories from classmates and, and, you know, other alumni. And, and really, I'd say in some ways, it's, it's kind of a unifying effort for, you know, the, the 1,200 or so graduates mm -hmm. of the Leaders for Global Operations program. It's a very, very tight community. Um, but I think really this book helps make it even tighter. And we really hope that it will be um, kind of a living work. I mean, our, our vision is that future graduates of the program will continue to bring forward stories like those that are captured in the book today and that, you know, maybe there'll be future editions that, that have different stories or more stories. Mm -hmm. um, Don's lessons are still being used uh, in, in teaching this leadership class. He stopped teaching the class, as you can imagine, the last few years of his life. But those that have picked up the reins really have stayed true to his legacy and are using his mantras. And this book will be used uh, in future years uh, to uh, to teach this class. Well, and I and I think one uh, you know hope I would have for the book is that it's not just a book that's written for you know the, this community of twelve hundred graduates and, and future students. I mean, I really do think there are, are very you know broadly applicable lessons from the book. And so for listeners who um, you know, aren't in manufacturing leadership career paths, um, you know, I think maybe you know, the three of us would agree you know, that, that leadership is leadership. So the, you know, the mantras here, and you know, there's a lot of overlap with what great leaders in healthcare would say, leadership as a stewardship, um, trying to, you know, uh, man, you know the, the, the mantra of, you know, one manages things and people lead people. Um, stamping out self-serving well, politics. I'm just kind of picking random mantras because they all apply. You know, hospitals have silos and and people lose sight of uh, the patient or what the hospital is trying to accomplish as a whole and they get focused on their own um, needs or own internal battle. I guess there's that self-ship phrase that, that you brought up earlier, Steve. But I mean, I think, you know, the book is a, a really compelling collection of real life stories where there's often no easy answers. And, and I think that's where, you know, these mantras as, as a guidepost um, can be really helpful. Ruthie, as, as we wrap up, do you, do you have any other kind of reflections on the process of seeing these stories being collected? Well, one thing just to, to 
um, that I feel compelled to say about what you were just saying that I think is really important to learn about, you know, my dad's whole leadership style is there is really within it, this concept of being a good person, the stewardship, you know, my father gave back to his community. He was on the board of the hospital. He was on the museum board, the boys girls club, you know, the YMCA, he gave of his time. He was an incredible, you know, community person. Um, in fact, you know, Stanley tools was located in New Britain, Connecticut. And, you know, most of the executives lived in the, 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 the you know, the, the wealthier suburbs, if you will, you know, that were surrounding. And my father wanted to live in sort of the working class town where the factories were located. You know, he wanted to have the same mayor as all the people that were working in the factories of Stanley. You know, he was very, you know, he really believed that that was part of being a good person. You know, all these things that's underneath each of these mantras, part of it is you can't, you can't be that leader who's just like, you know, like Steve said, you can't be, you know, taking bodies as you go, you know, because it's a short-term situation. It's not a long-term leader. And, you know, I'll never forget when I graduated Bowdoin College, my dad sat me down and basically told me that whatever you do in your career, you know, your life, you need to be it, do it, you know, authentically and be a good person and do the right thing, if you will. And it's going to take you twice as long to get to the top, but you're going to get there and you're going to stay there. And I think that that's what makes this book unique because there is that underlying, you know, almost like, you know, the ethics and values that were really important to my dad. Um, that is, it can be applying to any, any type of um, industry, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, healthcare, you know, manufacturing, entrepreneurship. Um, and, you know, these are real people and you know, I think looking at the titles, doing the right thing is also just, you know, being authentic. And, um, you know, it says that, you know, followers choose leaders they trust, respect and are comfortable with. And you can't gain that kind of leadership if you're not a good person. Well, and, and, and hopefully what you said there and the stories in the book will be encouraging to people who are trying to take on formal leadership roles. I see this a lot in hospitals where there are a lot of really good people and a lot of times they're not confident in being a leader because they say, well, you know, they, they might not have the right degree or they might not have the right uh, formal education. But I think, you know, uh, I think the, you know, the story from the book here is that, you know, there, there's more to it than that. If you have that core of, you know, caring about others and being a genuine person and uh, having high integrity, that that's probably half the battle or at least more than half the battle right there. So hopefully yeah. you know, that, that'll encourage people to, to take that leap if, if they feel like they're, they're a good person. Go and, go and be a leader, right? Yeah, and there's so many different leadership styles. I mean, one of the mantras is about that, that you know, there's many different styles of leadership. You can even be a quiet leader. You know, you can, you know, leadership does not take a size or shape or a form. And mm. it's important to be true to your own personal you know, not to change yourself to be a leader, you know, to do it in your own way that works for you. And it's okay to have, you know, a different style, you know, so people shouldn't think that they have this vision of a leader. And I think, you know, in collecting the stories, I think what was interesting is we did steer it in the sense of we wanted to make sure we had enough stories from female leaders. Mm -hmm. You know, we wanted to balance out 
you know, the, the mantras that were being um, alluded to, that they weren't all one type, you know what I mean? The stories had various mantras, examples of how they were utilized. And that was what was great is that we did get great stories from all types of leaders, from women, from men, um, you know, leadership. Some of the people, some of the stories were presidents of companies and some were like, you know, leaders lower down the rank, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's all the same. The principles work in all those places. Well, and I think with that, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up uh, the discussion today. But, you know, again, I would encourage people uh, to go and find the book, uh, go on uh, Amazon, search for uh, Do the Right Thing. I guess the uh, the, the Spike Lee movie uh, comes up. But if you go under the uh, the book uh, section, you can find Do the Right Thing available in uh, Kindle or paperback. Highly recommended. Hope you will uh, check that out. So uh, Ruthie Davis and Steve Cook, thank you so much for sharing some of your stories and reflections and telling us about Don Davis and the book today. Thank you for being here. Thanks, you. I really appreciate it. Same here. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.